Well, this time last year, one week ago, I preached my first sermon here. It was my candidating sermon. So you guys have almost had to bear with me for a whole year now. Thank you for your patience. Yes, yes. I don't know if you're clapping for me or for your patience, but I, I, I accept the gesture. It has been a wonderful, absolutely wonderful privilege to be here pastoring. I receive such great satisfaction being here and preaching. I'm overjoyed that the Lord would lead me here. And I thank you for your love, for your concern for me and my family as we transition. And I thank you for your love for me. And I love you. And I thank you for your love and support. And the good news is, is that we're making it through Philippians. Amen? Today we're finishing Philippians 1. So let's go ahead and turn there. Philippians 1. We're going to be tackling the last part of 28 all the way to the end of the chapter. And my hope for you, my hope for this congregation, is that through my life and efforts, that your love for Jesus Christ would increase. My hope for you is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Philippians 1.28, starting here at the first sentence in 28. This is a clear sign to them of their, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Three points for you this morning. I've entitled this morning's sermon, God's Gifts. This is going to be a very simple sermon. God gives three gifts in this passage. There are three gifts. And those three gifts form the three points of the sermon. And at the end of each point, I'll have a point of application. So three points, three gifts, and three points of application. That's where we're headed. So for the first point, for the first gift, write this. Salvation. Salvation. The first gift that Paul depicts God giving in this passage is salvation. And I get this from the last sentence of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is a difficult sentence to interpret, and it's even awkward in English. And if you know, if, if, it, if, the, if a sentence is awkward in English, it's also awkward in Greek. So the, the difficulty of this passage, excuse me, of this sentence, is determining what the this at the beginning of the sentence refers to and the that at the end of the sentence. So we have a this and we have a that. This is and that's and these and those are ambiguous words. If I say to you, hey, can you do this for me? And there's no context, you'll say, well, what? So they refer to other ideas. And it's hard to determine what the this is the clear sign, what Paul is saying here. What is the clear sign, Paul? What is this sign of those who oppose the Philippians? What is the sign of their destruction? 
And I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And, and it could be that the Philippians are, are, are maintaining faithfulness in light of difficulty, that there are these people who oppose the gospel in Philippi, and the Philippians are standing resolute. They're standing side by side. They're standing firm. They're struggling with one another. And the faithfulness to God, faithfulness of God to the Philippians, as evidence in their unity, is what is assigned to those who oppose them of their destruction. If you're getting lost here, don't, don't worry. It, it doesn't factor heavily into this passage or in the sermon. What's important to know, though, is that somehow, some way, these opponents of the gospel in Philippi know that their destruction is coming. And then we have this that at the end of the sentence. But of your salvation and that from God. Now, what is the that referring to? Paul doesn't specify. It could be referring to everything that Paul has been saying since verse 27. So the standing firm, once again, the struggling side by side, the unity in Philippi, the opponents, their destruction, and ultimately the salvation of the Philippians. It could refer to all of that. And the theological idea behind that would be that God is sovereign, that God is in control of what's happening in Philippi, that regardless of how, how bleak it looks for the Philippians, that God is in control. It could mean that. The way I'm going to take it this morning, though, is a bit more specific. And I want you to see that two words before the that at the end of verse 28, what word occurs? Salvation. And one way you know what the thises and the thats are referring to are the words that they're in close proximity to. And the that here is in very close proximity to this word salvation. So the idea that I'm arguing, what Paul is saying here, is whenever he says, and that from God at the end of 28, what Paul is saying is that salvation is from God. That salvation is a gift. That salvation originates in God's minds, God's mind, was executed by God, and is applied by God. That's the idea. Salvation is a gift of God. And the theological point here is this notion of grace. Grace, grace. God's grace. If there's one message that this world needs to hear, it's one of grace. And to put it, put it in its most simple form, grace is the idea that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what grace is. That even though we deserve judgment from God because of our sins, that God, because of His love for us, as expressed in the person and work of Christ, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That is grace. And this notion of grace, this doctrine of grace that is so precious to us is what separates Christianity from every false religion. All other religions are all other false religions are about man achieving favor with God based upon man's actions and deeds. It's about man climbing to God 
whether it's bathing in a river in India, whether it's doing good works, whether it's praying to Mary, all other false religions are about works righteousness. And Christianity is all about grace. In Christianity, it's not about what you do. You do not find acceptance from God on the basis of your own good deeds. The Bible says that we do not have good deeds outside of Christ. What biblical Christianity teaches is that we find acceptance because of what God has done, because of Jesus, because of his blood for me and for you. That's what Christianity is all about. Listen to this quote. All religions seek a way of salvation. All human beings long for happiness because the human heart is created for God. All false religions seek redemption through human action. However, the human problem is conceived in these false religions. They all maintain that human beings are the ones who must satisfy the demands of their deity and fulfill the laws of their deity. All religions, listen very closely, all religions and philosophies other than Christianity are about man saving himself. The biblical viewpoint is radically different. Salvation in the Bible is solely a gift from God. Unique to the Christian religion is the reality of Jesus Christ and the redemption he brings to us based upon God's full initiative. What we have as Christians, the difference between Christianity and false religions is the notion of grace. That it is God and God alone who saves us. We are not saved on the basis of of our own acts or deeds. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's our confession. That's what we say to this world is that what I could not do for myself, God has done for me in Christ. And when you capture that, when you get that idea, what it does is it changes your life. And the way it changes you, it changes you in a multitude of ways. But the way I want to apply this this morning is in relationship to other people. As we see that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, as we see God's patience and forbearance and long-suffering with us in our sins, that God continually is faithful to us. As we see that, we learn to treat others not as their sins deserve. Oftentimes, we're very quick to ask for forgiveness, but very slow to extend forgiveness to others. That's something that we do as fallen creatures. We ask for great patience, please be patient with me. But we're very slow to extend patience towards others and their faults and shortcomings. 
And what I want you to see is the way that you should respond as a Christian, as a recipient of the unmerited grace of God, is to not be quick to judge others, but to be patient and loving and kind. That's how God treats you. And that's the way that God wants us to treat one another with great patience. So this first point, God gives salvation. This is based upon grace. And the way you should therefore live is to be patient with others. Your spouse, your kids, your family members, church members, me, the whole world, that we're patient. second point for you this morning, the second gift that God gives. Look with me in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The second gift, what Paul says here, the second point, is faith. So the first point is salvation. The second point is faith. And I'd like to draw attention to the from pulpit and paper this week. I, 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 this week I tried to connect the sermon with what I write. So please read that for a, a, a longer discussion about this topic of God-giving faith. Obviously, don't, don't read it while I'm preaching, but hopefully afterwards. So God gives faith. Now, what Paul is saying here is the way he, he, he shows us, the way he tells us that God gives faith is he uses this, this phrase not only, and it makes it a bit confusing. Paul says that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. The way, what Paul is saying here is kind of like this. If I were to say to you, I, I'm not only preaching in this service, but I also preached in the first service. So I'm using that word not only. What I'm saying here is that I both, I preached in both the second and the first service. You can, you, you can say that same idea by using the word not only or using the word both. So the way we might understand verse 29 is like this. Another way we can understand verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should both believe in him, in him and also suffer for his sake. The idea is that God gives two gifts in this passage. One is faith, what we're dealing with now. And the next is suffering, which will be our next point. God gives faith. Now this word for grant, it has been granted to you. This is the verb form of grace. We're speaking of grace a lot. What Paul is saying is that it, it has been graced to you to believe in him. This verb means to give freely as a favor to give graciously, not on the basis of works. God does not give us faith upon our works, but he gives it as a free gift. If you believe this morning, the reason why you believe is because God has granted to you that faith. We are saved not on the basis of what we do, but solely on the basis of the grace of God. Turn with me to Acts 5. Excuse me, Acts 16, verse 11. 
Acts 16, verse 11. We're going to see what this looks like in real time. What does it look like, Pastor, in real time for God to give people faith? Acts 16, 11. What we have here is that we have Luke's account of Paul and Luke arriving in Philippi. And what this story tells us, it tells us of the first convert in Philippi. Her name is Lydia. And I want you to see what the narrative says about Lydia. Pay very close attention to that. Beginning in verse 11. So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Pay attention right here. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That's how the church in Philippi got started. Lydia was the first convert. So whenever Paul's writing to Philippians, I imagine that he has Lydia in mind. And notice how Luke describes Lydia's conversion. This is my question I want you to ask of the text. Okay, ask this question. Why does Lydia pay attention to the apostles? Why does Lydia become baptized? Why? What's the reason why the text gives? The, what's the reason? What answer does the text give? Again in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. And what did this lead to, Pastor? This led to her paying attention to what was said by Paul. And after paying attention, verse 15, she was baptized. So this passage gives us a chain of events. The last event is baptism. The next, the preceding event is paying attention or accepting what the apostles teach. What's the first event, though, that gets the ball rolling? It was an act of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond. And the main reason why she responded was because God opened her heart. What Luke is saying here and what Paul says in Philippians 1 29 are complementary. It's referring to the same, same idea. God opens Lydia's heart in Acts, and God gives faith to Lydia in Philippians. It's the same idea. And it means this for you. This is what it means. Your faith, the reason why you believe, if you believe this morning, the reason why you believe in Jesus Christ is ultimately because God has given you the faith, the gift of faith. Now, there are a number of reasons why people believe, and I'm not denying those. 
I personally believe in Christ because I was raised in a Christian home. I was taught the gospel from a young age. I found it compelling. I've believed upon Jesus. I've committed my life to him. I've studied the Bible. I believe it's true. There are a number of reasons why we have faith. The point I'm trying to make, though, is what is the ultimate foundation of faith? What is it? What Paul is saying and what, what Luke is saying is that the ultimate basis of faith is the grace of God. The reason why you believe this morning ultimately is because God has given you faith. And as a result of that, you believe. That's our ultimate hope and basis of life. It's not our own doing. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, faith and salvation, this is not your own doing. Faith is not your own doing, dear friend. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is totally of God. From beginning to end, it's all of God's grace. And the way that grace manifests itself in the second point is through faith. God gives us faith. And the application for this point is this. Once you realize that all of life, everything good that you experience is because of God's initiative, because of God's goodness, because of God's love, because of God's gifts, as you realize that, you begin to view yourself in a little manner. Whenever the grace of God shows up and we truly see and appreciate faith as a gift from God, we become humble. Humility is key. When we appreciate the grace of God towards us in faith, we do not boast, we do not gloat, we do not seek to self-promote, but we humble ourselves, both before God and man. not a result of works so that no one may boast. Dear Christian, be humble. Be humble. Don't be fixed on self. In the social media age, it's very easy to tell everyone how awesome we are. That's not what the Lord wants from you. The Lord wants deep, abiding humility before both God and man because it's all of grace. Now for our third point. Turn with me back to Philippians 1. First point, salvation. First gift, salvation. Second point, faith. Second gift, faith. Now for our third point, our third gift. Write this, suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ. This is the third gift that Paul specifies God gives in this passage. Philippians 1.29 again, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Verse 30, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. 
So what's going on in Philippi is the Philippians are engaged in a conflict. There are those who oppose the work of the ministry. There are those that oppose the church. That was specified in 128. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So the Philippians have these opponents. And this opposition has risen to the level of persecution, of suffering. And these opponents are inflicting upon the Philippians. We don't know how. We don't know what. But they're inflicting the Philippians with suffering. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that that suffering for Christ is a grace to the Philippians. And then in verse 30, Paul brings himself into the discussion. Paul is one who, ha who has suffered greatly for the Christian faith. And what Paul is saying is that the Philippians and himself are engaged in the same conflict. They're, they have both suffered for Christ. Paul is saying here that suffering for Christ, undergoing injustice for the sake of Jesus, is a blessing. Now, pastor, am I hearing you right? It is a blessing to suffer for Jesus? That is a grace? Yes. It's one of the greatest gifts that God bestows upon his church. Turn with me to Acts 5. I want to show you this again in real time. Acts provides a good story for this. Acts 5, verse 39. So the context here, the gospel is advancing in Jerusalem. And as the gospel advances, there's Jewish, Jewish opposition. And these Jewish leaders persecute the apostles. That's the context. Acts 5, 39. We're going to go right at the end of, of, of verse 39. So this they, so they took his advice. This they is the, the Jewish leaders. So they, the Jewish leaders, took his, took, his, took his advice, excuse me. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council. Look what they do. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Church family, do you see how their apostles responded to this? They rejoiced. They said, thank you, God, that, I could, that we can suffer for Jesus. What Luke says here is what Paul says in Philippians 1. To suffer for Christ for his name, to undergo injustice for his name is a blessing. It's a grace. Now, pastor, pastor, you've got to help me see something. Why would I ever want to do this? Why would someone ever consider suffering a blessing? Help me understand. Certainly. Suffering goes against all of our natural sentiments. What we seek in life is what Catherine and I, my family, just did. Vacation, ease, comfort, pleasure. 
These are all things that we seek. Safety, bodily health. That's what we naturally want. That's what we naturally gravitate towards. And to suffer is the exact opposite of that. And oftentimes we think that comfort and safety and ease and vacation, that those are blessings from God. And they are. I'm not denying that this morning. But greater than those things is to suffer for Jesus. And the reason why that is the case goes back to Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Dear friend, how worthy is the gospel? How worthy is Jesus? How precious is he? He is worthy. He is the God-man who came and died for our sins. And to suffer for Christ is a blessing because he is so worthy. Jesus is worth sacrificing everything for, even our own lives. Jesus is that valuable. Jesus is that worthy of praise that my physical life is worth giving up for him. Jesus is so worthy and so magnificent and so pleasant that he is worth dying for. And dear friends, if he's worth dying for, he's also worth living for. And my appeal to you this morning, as I end, is very simple. Follow Jesus. Whether he leads you to suffer for his name, or whether he leads you elsewhere, follow Jesus. He is worthy. He's worthy of it all. My life, my death, all of it. And young theologians, young people, he's worthy of your worship too. He wants you to follow him as well. This isn't just for adults. Jesus, young theologians, wants you to give him his li your life. He wants you to give him everything, even at this young age. Forsake everything, dear church, even life itself, to follow Jesus. He is worthy. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the word made flesh. And Father, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, that you would transform our lives in a way that we not only, if it comes to it, will die for Christ, but that we will live for him right now. Father, if we are not willing to live for him, we are not willing to die for him. Father, I pray for your power through the ministry of the Spirit, that you would touch our lives, that we would forsake our sins, that we would forsake everything for Jesus Christ, that he and he alone 
would be for us that which is most, most precious. We thank you for his sacrifice, for his life, for his ministry in heaven. And we pray for his power through his spirit. In Christ's name, amen.